So, uh, I mean, obviously there's a difference between like being on staff and being freelance. So like if you're somebody who's like listening to this and you're you know, trying to be a writer and you're not on staff, if one person rejects it, there's, all, you know, they might have their own reason for rejecting it. It might be good. It might not be good. Um, but there's always somebody who wants to hear your voice if it's good. Um, there are times when your ideas are bad <laughs> and you have to be like, okay, that was a bad idea and I shouldn't have done that. Um, and you have to like, part of like growing as a writer and editor is learning how to do that. You're listening to Creative Breakthrough, the podcast that provides you with the strategies to elevate your creative passion to the next level. I'm your host, creative hustler, and chicken wing lover, Shireen Kassam, aka The Funny Brown Girl. And yes, I have an unhealthy obsession with chicken wings. Now, get ready to flex your creative muscle and keep winning. Is your mind always running? Do you struggle focusing? Do you have a hard time turning off after your nine to five to focus on your creative passion? Well, then I may have an answer for you, CBD. CBD is an active ingredient in cannabis derived from the hemp plant, but unlike its cousin marijuana, it doesn't give you the psychotic high. And it's legal in most places, including the United States. Since I introduced CBD into my daily life, I've felt less anxious and more creative. It's helped me sleep better, be more relaxed, and most of all, it's helped me turn off after a stressful day and focus on my creative hustles. If you want to learn more, check out hoorayforcbd.com and use the code PODCAST to save 10% on your first purchase. Again, that's hoorayforcbd.com and promo code PODCAST to save 10% off any CBD purchase. Welcome back to another episode of The Creative Breakthrough. I'm your host, Shireen Kassam. For those of you who are joining us again and know, already know me, I know I probably say this a lot, but I am so grateful that you come back week after week after week to listen to this podcast. I am so grateful for you all. And for the new listeners, thank you for joining us today on this momentous occasion. And it is a momentous occasion. I hope that as you're listening to this podcast, you are eating chicken wings or chocolate or sipping on champagne or doing something fun because that's what this podcast is about having fun. So before we get started, I just wanted to say one thing. I was recently at a volleyball practice and it wasn't for my, for those of you who don't know, I play volleyball and I'm participating in a tournament during Thanksgiving weekend. And I was helping out another team practice that, that wasn't my team. And they were giving each other feedback and helping them improve. And I just said, Hey, I would love some feedback too. And this woman said to me, no, your competition. And in that moment, I was like, wow, okay, well, that's really poor sportsmanship. But I was also like, wow, like that it kind of is true. Like she's nervous that if she helps me figure out my weak points and figure out what I'm doing wrong, then yeah, I could dominate over her and that would make her job as a player even harder. And I was thinking about that from a creative lens. And I was thinking like, we are so lucky as creatives because we don't have to worry about competition because we all have different stories to tell. We all have different experiences to draw upon. We all have different ideas. And so whether we're a storyteller or a comedian or a writer or a poet or a dancer, no two people are alike. We all bring something different to the table. There's so many swim lanes to be swimming in and none of those swim lanes 
cross over or intersect. And that's the great thing about being a creative is that I can read your screenplay and help you make it stronger because your idea is totally different than my idea is going to be or my story is going to be. And you don't know. You don't know who the direct, what the director or the producer or the talent agent, you don't know what they're looking for. You have no idea. So you helping someone isn't really hurting you. It's really just helping you get stronger and helping you help other people, which is always going to come back to you in multi- multi multitude and multifold and I, I have this example for you and I didn't look it up because I forgot but there's this show on HBO and somebody hopefully can remind me what it is and it's this show that was picked up um, a couple years ago about comedians living in New York City and how hard it is to be a comedian and like how you're like poor and like you know living home like hand to mouth and when this guy's when this guy got picked up by HBO and got his pilot picked up by HBO um he was told that he could bring his friends into the writing room with him and that's like not not kind of unheard of like usually your pilot gets picked up and you get brought into the writing room and then they give you writers to work with but they actually told him you can bring your own writers into the writing room with you and so obviously he picked up his friends right he brought all his writing buddies and comedian friends into the writing room with him and that's what I think about all the time it's like my goal is to write a pilot and get it picked up and then I want to actually be in the writer's room writing it and I also want to be in front of the camera acting in it but if I get that opportunity to bring my friends into the writing room with me, guess who those people are going to be? Those are the people who took the time to help me read my screenplay or help me tighten a joke or were just there for me, supporting me and just being being there by my side, applauding, applauding me and helping motivate me and giving me that confidence that I can do it. You know who's not going to be there? The people who said no, the people who said you're my competition, the people who were nervous that if they helped me, I was going to get further ahead than them. But guess what? When I get that phone call, I'm sure those people are going to slide into my DM asking me for help. And so I say that to you because you never know who you're helping. You never know where that's going to get you. You never know what that's going to give you back. Right. And even though, even then you shouldn't even be doing it for those things. You shouldn't be saying, well, I'm going to help him because I think he's going to be famous one day. You should be doing it from, because you want to be doing it. But as creatives, I just want to remind you that we're not each other's competition. We're actually, we are actually in such a great spot because we can help each other get stronger and not worry about somebody stealing our limelight or stealing something from us. Because again, Remember, your experiences, your stories, your ideas are all so different. And so there's no intersection around who can do something better than the other. Okay? I hope that all made sense. Now, this week, we're doing something different with the podcast. I'm actually splitting the podcast episode into two separate episodes. And I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. One is I always try to keep the episodes short. Like I literally go into the interview thinking I'm going to keep this episode at 20, 25 minutes because that's what I know people like. And then I get all these other questions pop into my head and I just want to keep learning and talking to the person. And all of a sudden the interview is like an hour. And I know a lot of you have written to me and said, Shereen, that's a lot of time for us to listen to this. So I'm splitting the episode into two so that it's more manageable, bite-sized pieces so you can listen to it um, while you're eating a meal or driving to work or going for a jog. And then it's not too too long but it's not too short so I would love your feedback on if you like this new format or not okay so let's get into it this week we're talking to Ahmed Ali Akbar who is the writer and host of the see something say something podcast and video series previously he was a staff writer for BuzzFeed and a Detroit public school teacher he acted as a correspondent to Netflix's follow this 
Pushkin's Solvable, and other shows. He was the editor of the now-defunct Rad Brown Dad's Tumblr and contributed to the Salam Love Essay Anthology. He's a graduate of University of Michigan Ann Arbor and holds a master's in Islamic studies from Harvard Divinity School. What are we waiting for? Let's get started. Welcome to the guest chair, Ahmed. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I can't believe I'm talking to you. I, I, I listen to your podcast and now it's just so weird that I'm actually like talking to you because when you listen to a podcast, <laughs> it almost feels like you're talking to me and now I actually get to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is probably an incredibly old meme, but there's that one uh, meme that's like, this is what it's like listening to a podcast. And it's a guy like eating cereal and he's looking at a stock image of three people talking to each other. Yeah. He's like not actually talking to them. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like that. So this is like, this is like one of those realities come true. <laughs> so thank, <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Seriously, I appreciate, appreciate it a lot, Shireen. No, thank you. So I first, I actually first heard about you from your Tumblr account, Rad Brown Dads. And I just wanted to know like, where did the inspiration come for that? Wow, you're an old fan. As people have not asked about Rad Brown Dad for forever. I'm old. Um, I just aged myself, I think. Because I looked up no, no, I, no. I looked up what year you graduated college, and I was like, oh, wow, I'm his auntie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, when it comes to all the other creators online, I feel I'm in my 30s now, so I feel like also like just time catches up with you. Rad Brown Dad does feel like a long time ago, but it was um, basically, so, you know, if you haven't heard of it, it was like a Tumblr that I did where I like posted these um, pictures of basically uncles in like the 70s and 80s and the 90s, you know, the parents of kids who were on the internet, basically, um, you know, brown kids. I, I'm obviously like Pakistani and Muslim, um, but it wasn't exclusive to that. It was, you know, all sorts of like, you know, d dads of color. Um, and the reason why I started doing it was I was bored with grad school. <laughs> um, I was in grad school and, you know, bored is not the right word, but it was unfulfilling, I guess, maybe. I always say grad school was like a happy time in my life because I was learning a lot and I cared about it, but I didn't feel like challenged or like anyone was like engaging with my work. Like nobody took the time to read my papers, for instance. And this I would was write at these, like, Harvard, right? Doing your master's yeah, in Islamic studies? That's right. Okay. Uh, at the Divinity School, yeah. So I didn't feel like anyone was engaging with my work. So I don't know what happened, but I just, I like, I think my, my cousin like had an idea of like capturing how ridiculous his dad and my dad are together. They're like kind of an odd couple. Um, but somehow it just transformed into this thing where I was like posting these photos and it became like kind of addicting to do um, instead of my papers. So I would like stay up late at night and like write these captions. Um, and it like people responded to it. You know, I have like had a million um, blog ideas in my life, like literally a million. Um, and for some reason, that was just the first one that really like got an audience. Um, and yeah, it kind of like transitioned into like writing uh, personal essays and blogging more about culture and stuff. And yeah, it led kind of I would say it also led me to my like work at um, BuzzFeed, which was like soon after grad school. Very cool. So do you think or would you say that this was when your creative itch started, like your creative journey started in grad school or did it start way before then? I think I've always I mean, like I've always blogged, for instance, like I was on LiveJournal. Oh, wow. Like <laughs> I, think I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I was like looking for an audience, but like my high school friends and I, we were all on LiveJournal and I like loved writing. And it was like I never felt happier than when like I wrote a LiveJournal post. Um, and I always really liked music and stuff. Um, I was 
you know, on the path to like professional school of like, you know, first being a doctor and then maybe a lawyer and all that stuff. But I just, um, you know, I just realized that I wanted to like talk about culture, I guess. I always had an interest in like, you know, cultural production. So I wouldn't say that it started my itch, but it like solidified that, oh, maybe this is something that I can do. Like, for instance, I never considered being a journalist um, very strongly. It was always kind of like something I could do, but I didn't really consider doing it until around that time when I was like feeling so um, underwhelmed kind of by my grad school experience that I like wanted to like connect with people with my creative work. Um, and then like Rad Brown Dad was like a moment where I was like, yeah, this would be great if I could do something like this for the rest of my life. What was your original plan to, after you graduated with your master's degree? Um, to go to a PhD program and then I'm a professor. I always said that I've like, as a career, I wanted to, I want to write, I want to teach and I want to like be in, engaged with issues of like social justice. That's what I used to say a lot around that time. Um, and I felt like a PhD was way too long of a path to get there <laughs> and get similar stuff much quicker if I just started writing. Got it. Yeah. Very cool. So when did, when were you a teacher then, a public school teacher? I did Teach for America um, uh. right after high school. I was uh, not really sure that I was ready for grad school at that time. Um, and I thought I wanted to maybe teach high school. So Teach for America, I did not like necessarily buy into the philosophy around Teach for America, um, which is like, you know, sending these like, you know, I don't know, they call them like talented, like, like sort of like, like, you know, taking people from colleges and sending them to like underserved areas and that'll like sort of solve the public school pricing. For me, it was sort of like, um, you know, my first yeah, job and interview I got out of college that like felt like a full-time job. And I really was, I was like, maybe it's not that I want to like write things. I want to like actually like interact with students. So I, I, I taught at a, at, a, at a school for a year in Detroit. Um, it wasn't very long, um, but I do feel like I can, uh, you know, it's definitely became part of my identity and really shaped sort of, um, you know, my trajectory. It was like, the, I would say of all the things I've done, it's the hardest thing I've done by a long shot. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, it was really, really challenging. Um, I often felt like I, I would never be good enough um, for that job. And I have a lot of admiration for teachers as a result. Um yeah, and as you may know, like even just people who go directly through um, teachers programs, many of them don't last a year. So I also lasted a full year, and <laughs> I was I applied to grad school. I was considering doing the second year, but the school was like, "This is like a really hard thing, and if you are not fully committed to this, like it's it, like you, you you'd feel like you can't handle the stress because we know it's a really high stress environment, or like you have your your like your mind is wandering and you're not like committed to like staying for several years, then you should probably just you know consider leaving, and that's okay. They were like totally cool about it. They understood how hard the job was, and I took that to, as like I had gotten into you know sort of my dream school of um, Harvard Divinity, and I was like, all right, I mean that's like a sign if I've ever heard one. I was like still thinking about staying, and then I yeah I ended up going to grad school right after that. <laughs> so you, you were at grad school. You started this Tumblr account, Rad Brown Dad. It, it, went, it went viral. How did that then transition you to working at BuzzFeed? Like, how does one even go from a master's in Islamic studies to working at BuzzFeed? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, even at BuzzFeed, they thought it was quite funny. They were like, the only person in our the, in our staff who has like a master's in Islamic studies from Harvard. Um, which is probably true. Um, 
So after Rad Brown Dads was sort of like a thing, I started submitting to like essays and writing to different things. And one of the places that took my work was a book called Salam Love, American Muslim Men on Love, Sex and Intimacy by, it was edited by Aisha Matu and Noura Maznavi, um, who are kind of like inspirations, I think also for my work. Um, and yeah, I like wrote a personal essay there and then I continued to like sort of submit mostly for free, honestly, which I don't recommend. I just didn't know anybody in media whatsoever. Like I literally don't think I can think of a single person that I, that I knew at that time that was a journalist. Um, besides maybe, I guess my brother, my, my, my sister's husband's brother, but like that, that doesn't like, we weren't, he's like an investigative journalist. This was like a totally different thing. So I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so I just started writing for like, um, the aerogram and, um, maybe, I don't know, like Islamic monthly, like some random places. I don't think that had anything to do with why I got the job at Buzzfeed. I graduated. I had like five months of being unemployed, um, in like from like June to October. And I was like applying to all these different, um, media fellowships, which were people who were like either trying to start their career in, in media or they were like career transitioning. And BuzzFeed was actually the only one that gave me a, a, an interview. Um, and I went in person and they liked me and they hired me for the fellowship. And that fellowship was like a com competitive thing between like, usually it was like classes of five to 10. And they sometimes hired people, sometimes didn't. And, you know, I was very different from every other candidate, um, but ultimately they did hire me and I stayed on there. Um, so I kind of learned everything on the job, um, which is a really interesting way to <laughs> kind of pick a vocation. Um, yeah. So when uh, you, said, you said earlier, like, don't do it for free, like, don't submit for free. Why not? Like, what did that hurt you, you think? First of all, I thought when I got the interview, it was like, oh, well, they definitely hired they definitely got me an interview because i was like, writing for these places i was like reviewing comics and like tv shows and stuff for for these websites but they were like actually no that stuff we kind of we kind of thought they were like like my interviewee who became my boss for a while and was like a mentor was like she was like you know uh we actually thought you were like maybe i mean like buzzfeed as you might know is like quite like has a sense of humor so they were like your resume seemed very serious but the thing that really like um, stood out was this like Tumblr that you did. And I was like, oh, so you didn't care about any of the other writing I did? They were like, not really. That was like not a big deal. But it was interesting to us that you were able to build an audience on your own entirely. And that it was like this like kind of like specific thing that hadn't been done before. Right. Um, but if you don't so submit just, for free, then would you have been able to build a resume? So I think like, for instance, I just was going for, I just didn't know what I was doing. So like I was, I was just doing what was kind of the path of least resistance, like people I knew, like connections I knew and stuff. But like, once you, if you look, there's like a lot of places that are looking for pitches and yes, they might like some places like maybe are going to be like, show us your previous writing samples. And if you don't have any, it's like, can be problematic. But on the other hand, you write a really good pitch and you send it to any of these millions of websites, especially at that time when like the economy of, of online media was like, everyone was throwing money at it. Um, you could get paid for your work and it would seem more, it would definitely be more, um, prestigious than what I did. Um, which is like, uh, you know, still important work. Like I think all <laughs> that's not really important. Like I'm not saying they're not important. I don't appreciate that work, but like, uh, I would have had, um, I think you can just get paid for your work. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's like, that's like a big adage that I picked up in my time in journalism is like, that's what everyone kind of advises. It's like there's, there is enough work out there that you can get paid for. Um, well, that's good to know build your credentials. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of half true. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of 
you know, the freelance industry is, is pretty tough also in media. Mm -hmm. So you, you made it to Buzzfeed and then you were the host of one of the most popular podcasts, see something, say something, which is musings about being Muslim in America. How did that come about? Like, was that something that you threw out? Was that something they came at you with? So I was, so as a writer at BuzzFeed, I like was kind of a jack of all trades, but probably like 15 to 20% was like about American Muslims. And I was like, started like a editorial group that focused on that. I would, there was like a listserv in which we would like give feedback. Like anytime there was like a reporting on like, let's say there's a story on like women who like are like white American and like moved to Syria to be like marry an mm. ISIS fighter. Like So when BuzzFeed hired you, did they want you to take that angle? Like that Muslim, they wanted that Muslim angle? Not at all. Oh, okay. I, they, they never once at, like directed me to do identity work. Okay. It was all on my own and I, and, I, and I shaped it entirely. And I really appreciate that about them. I think like they incubated a way for me to do it on my own. So I basically, my, like my point is like, I'd become like over two years as a writer sort of a known voice who could like editorially produce content that was um, getting recognized. Like I was invited to the White House, um, the last White House iftar um, for the work I did at BuzzFeed, even prior to the podcast. Wow, that's awesome. Congrats. Um, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it was the last, I mean, there was a White House iftar at Trump's, if, but it wasn't really a White House iftar. Like, did they really celebrate Ramadan? I don't really I don't even so. remember hearing about that. I don't even, I don't even remember him saying Navroz Mubarak at any point. <laughs> He, he actually did do it, but did it he? was with diplomats only, not American Muslims. Okay. Like, Obama did a thing where he, like, invited American Muslims. And that itself is controversial, by the way. I won't get into that. <laughs> uh, but point being, like, I just developed this voice there. I don't know. Like, I didn't have, like, a Muslim editor. I didn't have anyone say, like, oh, this is something you should really focus on. I would just say, I think this would be good. And my editor would give me feedback, like, that's a good angle or that's not a good angle. And, like, I started giving other people feedback, having learned the BuzzFeed voice. I would, like, commission people on staff and out of staff to write for us. And there was an audio department there. They had, like, two podcasts or three podcasts. Another round was one of them that was, like, kind of, like, black Muslim women's experience. So I was asked by, you know, the audio team and the editors there, like, whether I would like to put one together based on the work I had already been doing editorially on the website. Um, and I... I said, yeah, I was hesitant at first, um, but I ended up saying, yeah, and I put together a pitch. Why were um, you hesitant? Because, like, um, I feel like at that time there was, like, a lot of, um, I think since See Something Say Something has come out, or at least, like, since, like, I've been online, like, the it, Muslim voices have become more diverse, but there's still a problem of, like, Muslim voices being often, um, like, brown Muslim, you know, Pakistani, Arab, Indian, Muslim men. Um, and the people who were the people that I admired the most were not of my own background. They were often like women or like, you know, um, you know, like the, the black Muslims that I grew up with or like stuff like that. So um, I just wasn't sure that I wanted to throw my hat in the ring as like another personality. But ultimately, I realized there would not be like a platform for Muslims on BuzzFeed. And I had seen how powerful it had been for like there to be platforms for like women of color, um, like with another round, which was a platform for women of color. So ultimately, I decided to like do a podcast that was about sort of celebrating the um, the wide diversity of American Muslims. And yeah, it went into development and, you know, it did well. And, you know, it, it, uh, it was like, you know, kind of became my job after that for about two years. Uh, and I love everything you just said, because I love how you crafted something, right? You crafted, you took your passion to BuzzFeed, 
well, you took you took your passion for writing to BuzzFeed, and then you you crafted that to be around the passion you had for like you what you talked about earlier about like culture and Islam and talking about social justice and stuff like that. And so yeah, it, it's cool that you took your career sort of in your own hands. Yeah, I think ultimately it's just I'm just somebody who just really like I get excited about new stuff, and I don't really like following what people tell me to do. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, probably makes me not a very good worker at times. But I also think it, you know, it just means like I want to do what feels right to me. And ultimately I was very, I was so incredibly lucky during my time, even in grad school, I'll say, to like do, to, to pursue things that really interested me and me in particular. Like, you know, nobody ever told me like, you should really do this stuff. And I like when I had to do that. everything I've done is basically been stuff that I'm like really, really personally passionate about. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice like when you were at what BuzzFeed? Do you have any advice on how to pitch your ideas when you, when there's maybe there's pushback and it might not be what they were expecting when they hired you? So uh, I mean, obviously, there's a difference between like being on staff and being freelance. So like, if you're somebody who's like listening to this and you're you know trying to be a writer and you're not on staff. If one person rejects it, there's, you know, they might have their own reason for rejecting it. It might be good. It might not be good. Um, but there's always somebody who wants to hear your voice if it's good. Um, there are times when your ideas are bad <laughs> and you have to be like, okay, that was a bad idea and I shouldn't have done that. Um, and you have to like part of like growing as a writer and editor is learning how to do that. Um, I think with pitching people often want like, like they want to do like something like, isn't this kind of interesting? Like that this is a thing. Or they like overreach. It's like one or the other. It's like they have this really tiny thing or they have this like really big thing. Um, and they're overreaching or they're underreaching. The real good stuff is like somewhere in the middle. There's a story being told. There's like something that, there's a narrative, there's like characters, or there's like a concept that's under, that's under misunderstood. Um, and, you know, people, I guess just have to have that perspective, I guess, when you pitch, like, you want to be confident, but you also want to be realistic about what you're what you're suggesting and what you're pitching. Um, yeah, I had I had stuff rejected that I thought was like kind of like I did. For instance, I had some comedy bits that were like, rejected and I ended up doing them, and they did do well. Um, and sometimes I feel like I don't understand why they rejected them in the first place. But other times I'm like, you know, it it just like you don't really always understand what'll do well um, when you go on the internet even i like as somebody who's been on the internet for like many years i like never know what will be popular of what i do and what i don't what won't be popular it can be kind of random you know you you really don't know and do you try to stay true to yourself when you're posting and putting stuff out there or do you try to figure out what's working and what's not working and then cater i try to stay true to myself mm -hmm. but i don't know if i would give that advice to other people <laughs> no that, well that's the advice i always give people so back me up <laughs> yeah yeah no okay the reason why i say that is because there, there is a, first of all, yes, of course, stay true to yourself. I'm like, I'm very deep in my career now, right? I'm not talking, I'm, if I'm talking about people who are like you're early in your career, absolutely stay, stay um, true to yourself because um, anyone can sniff when like somebody is opportunistically trying to do something. Um, but like, for instance, like there is probably a world in which like I pursued certain different things that I would have been happy doing um, uh, that would have been better for my career, but I chose to do like what I care about. That's fine. Like, I don't have any regrets about that. Um, but like, it's a little bit of both, you know what I mean? You have to like, like you have to be able to tell your moment and you also have to be able to, um, 
you know, figure out what your voice is. Um, like, I mean, like, like this thing about the podcast, like that was an opportunistic thing. I just like, I basically, right. Didn't I just say basically that I didn't want to do the podcast at first, uh, but I did it because I knew it would be important. You know what I mean? Like it, I knew that it would like open up Buzzfeed. It would open up podcast space. Um, I knew that I would enjoy it, but like, ultimately I think I'm a writer. I don't think I like, like to podcast, but I am most passionate about writing. Um, I never did any, like, I very minimally did like performance or radio or anything like that my whole life, but I've always written. Um, so don't, you, you know what I mean? Like you have to, it's a little bit of both. I, I definitely agree with you that you got to be yourself, but you also have to go for the moments in which, you know, things, uh, line up for you as well and go hard for them. Talking about podcasting, what, what do you think is the future of podcasts? Uh, well, I think a lot of the big players are getting into it and, uh, that is, uh, kind of a little, um, uh, it might, you know, it's got some advantages when big players get into it. You know, when you have like every celebrity has their own podcast, you know, there's probably less air for the little guys, which is a little bit, worse. but at the same time, I'm always impressed by how often podcasts break through. Um, I, I don't think anyone really knows. I don't think anyone really knows where it goes. I mean, people think it's a bubble. People think it's like the future. Um, I think it's like market penetration is getting bigger and bigger the more it uh, is around. So I don't know. I don't think they're, they're I don't. I think they're here to stay. I don't know what the future is. Um, yeah, I, 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 I wish I knew more to uh, predict such a thing, but uh, I, I don't. I, I really don't. I'm just doing my thing. <laughs> well, you did your thing and you did, you did it really well. So I, what advice do you have for people who want to start a podcast or who are in podcasting? And yes, I'm asking selfishly for myself. <laughs> as you know, Shireen, I think it's like, it's like, you know, one of the creative mediums, and it's almost like a joke as a result, that is super easy to get into because it doesn't require a lot of equipment. It doesn't require, you can always invest more technical skill in it, but in the beginning, it can require less technical skill than like, you know, video, or like even writing, for instance. Um, that doesn't mean everyone is good. Uh, so, but like, I think one thing that's important is like, you know, the power of editing. Uh, you know, people want to have an interview or a conversation with folks. Um, but like, what story are you telling? Like, do people, people, especially in the beginning, might not want to just listen to you talk to like somebody else, but how can you like weave an interesting narrative or like make listeners come back and keep them there? It's like an interesting question. So uh, my advice is like to really think about what kind of story you want to tell and to edit and to have an editor, um, whether it's like a friend or like who, you know, has some experience or it's like, it might be yourself, but like not just putting out like an hour of uninterrupted tape um, that just has like music at the beginning and the end. Um, I think most people know not to do that, but you'd be surprised at how often that's the case that people don't. Um, yeah. And to care more about your audience and your story than like the business side of it. Like it's important to be consistent and to like build your, like to like be loyal to your, to your audience. Um, you know, I'm independent now and I have like a Patreon and I think because of, you know, my consistency towards the work and not see something say something as a business the patreon has been pretty successful like people have like i'm successfully funding it on its own and i think it's because i i have that commitment to the narrative more than anything else um yeah it's 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 not easy to building a brand without seeming cynical um but that's like ultimately got to be the goal i think 
When you say building your story, do you mean the the narrative around the entire podcast or the story for each episode? Uh, I would say the latter. Um, the former matters, obviously, but like things change over time. That's normal. I mean, like some of the most popular podcasts are ones that like are so different from their beginning episodes. Like, and there's like all these like crazy inside jokes. I mean, I don't listen to these podcasts, but I know it's a thing, um, like that have developed over time. And yeah, it's like, okay for things to change. Like see something, say something is so different from the beginning. I would argue in some ways, I don't like when people listen to the first episode. They're like, Hey, I finally started listening to the episode, your podcast. I listened to the first episode. (laughs) I don't listen to the first episode. I sound so, so slow. Um, but yeah, it's okay to change over time. Um, oh, just to clarify, the thing I was saying about people making a joke, it's like a joke that everyone has a podcast now, you know what I mean? And like, nobody wants to listen to them. Um, so it's like, you know, it's, it should be enjoyable for you, you know? And it's like, you know, that's the ultimate thing. It should be like matter to you more than like the people listening. Like when I, when people are listening in, I get, I'm very excited and happy, but ultimately I'm doing this because I have something I want to say and I have a perspective that I want to share and, um, you know, the audience shrinks. It's like, I'm still going to do it because it matters to me. Right. Nope. And I totally agree. And I think, I think that is half the battle with podcasting now is that you do have half the people who really have a story to tell or want to help people or want to put something out there. Then you have the other half who think if I put something out there, I can quickly make a quick buck. Wow. Ahmed dropped so much knowledge today. Key takeaways from part one of this episode. One, you can always change your career path. Two, you can get paid for your work. Three, craft your job around your passion and doors will open. Four, do good work and people will notice. Five, if you have a good idea, people will listen. And six, go hard for the big moments. Join us in two weeks for part two of this episode. Ahmed and I get more into podcasting, what's next for Ahmed after BuzzFeed, and advice Ahmed has for creators on their journey. Now, go flex your creative muscle and keep winning. Thanks for listening. Stay connected about upcoming resources, including opportunities, festivals, competitions, and grants to help you grow your creative passion by subscribing to my bi-monthly newsletter by visiting funnybrowngirl.com forward slash subscribe. Don't miss out on a life-changing opportunity and subscribe today at funnybrowngirl.com forward slash subscribe. And hey, if you decide to go on Instagram today, follow me. I'm Funny Brown Girl. I'm Shereen Kassam, and you've been listening to Creative Breakthrough. Now, go flex your creative muscle and keep winning.